0: Welcome back to our series of satellite symposium from the ONS meeting. And now for our final symposium, focusing on the greatest current cause of cancer mortality, lung cancer, as Ms. Ann Culkin and Miss Wendy DeSalvo present cases which were commented on by Doctors Primo Lara and Greg Riley. Ms. Culkin presented the first case.
1: So this gentleman is a 64-year-old gentleman with stage 4 because he's got bilateral adenocarcinoma of the lung. He's a former police detective. He is now retired. He met his wife, interestingly enough, his current wife, in a bereavement group. His first wife died of cancer. He met his current wife, whose husband died of cancer. So needless to say, the arrival of this patient with all their expectations and their preconceived experience in the world of cancer and oncology really are on the surface, and when they're not on the surface, they're just beneath the surface of experience and thinking and the challenges of dealing with his own disease at this particular time in his life. What was
0: his smoking status?
1: So he is a former smoker. He had a 140-pack-year history of smoking. He also has a history of hypertension and hypothyroidism as well. And his initial presentation to his doctor was he developed an upper respiratory infection, was treated with rounds of antibiotics, chest x-ray was finally done, which moved into a CAT scan, which revealed his extent of disease.
0: So before we get into the management, just another word about this situation. Wendy, I know you're very interested in smoking and smoking cessation. What about the dynamic of a younger man presenting with lung cancer after having smoked?
2: Well, there's a lot of guilt People also blame the person with lung cancer. I find in my practice, most of the patients have had comments, you smoked, didn't you? Like you deserve to have lung cancer. And they're already facing a really devastating diagnosis. And to have that on top is really difficult for them.
0: So, Primo, this man has apparently unresectable disease because he has bilateral disease. He has an adenocarcinoma. He's a former smoker. And was he symptomatic from the disease, Ann?
1: He was actually because he had these, what he perceived to be recurrent upper respiratory infections. So he was dysnick, he had cough on presentation. And how
0: long had he had symptoms?
1: Almost about six or eight months by the time he got the final CAT scan biopsy. To Any other his tumor disease?
0: related symptoms? Weight loss, bone pain? No. What was his state of mind? Was he depressed? Was he in shock? Where was he?
1: anxiety at a level that is probably unmeasurable. And again, it came with his wife died of cancer. He was in a bereavement group. He heard stories of cancer patients. He knew he had lung cancer for which there is no cure.
0: So Primo, can you kind of analyze the decision that an oncologist might be thinking where new research
3: ties into making that decision? Sure. So what we have experienced in lung cancer now is really what the breast cancer docs have done 20 years ago. In lung cancer now, we're able to segment the population, particularly the adenocarcinomas, into specific molecular groups or subgroups in which we think we have better treatments. That's really the way we should be going, because in the old days, and that would be just five years ago, we would select patients according to clinical features. We would look at a patient and say, hey, you're a female, non-smoker, maybe you're of Asian descent you have adenocarcinoma, we ought to give you a drug like erlotinib because it appears to work better in those patients. Now we've learned that the main driver in that subgroup was a mutation in the EGFR gene. So now we've learned better how to segment our patients and select treatments according to what the tumor is telling us in terms of its biology. Let's talk a little
0: bit how you think through the patient who's presenting, as so many people do, with advanced, incurable, non-small cell, in this case, adenocarcinoma?
3: So we look at, in general, three features. The patient's clinical characteristics, smoking, performance status, we all look at that first. And then we examine the tumor histology. In this case, non-small cell lung cancer is really a disease of various histologies. And current agents now have been subdivided according to their labels, dependent on histology. For example, pemetrexid has had a restriction in its label to non-squamous histology based on data that shows that it has benefit in that subset of patients. And the third thing we look at now are the molecular features. So those are the three things we look at. Under molecular features, we examine the EGFR mutation status. At our institution, we also get additional information such as ERCC1 levels. That's a DNA repair enzyme that helps us decide whether a patient will respond or not respond to a platinum based regimen.
0: Greg, just to pick up on one point that Primo just made, which is the histology under the microscope of these non small cell tumors, because in the past, and again, the past is five years ago. It really didn't matter. Now, whether this is an adenocarcinoma, which is what the diagnosis was made here, or not, is huge in terms of selection of therapy. There's been data presented that the diagnosis histologically is not always accurate. You know, somebody calls it adenocarcinoma to somebody else, and they say, oh, no, it's not an adenocarcinoma.
4: No, I think that's absolutely true. I think that there are reasons to know, as we've alluded to. Efficacy and safety really are critically dependent upon knowing the tumor histology, because if a patient has a squamous cell tumor, they're much more likely to have a fatal bleeding event if they get bevacizumab. So this is something we need to know. What you alluded to, the fact that it's hard for some pathologists to tell the difference and the reliability of the telling the difference is a real problem. And what that really gets back to is that oftentimes patients with lung cancer are diagnosed based on a fine need. Needle biopsy. Just a little smidgen of cancer. Sometimes it's one slide with some cancer cells on it. And we're making all of our decisions based on this one slide worth of material. And I would argue that that's completely inadequate for our understanding of what we know about lung cancer and what we know about what pathologists can tell us. We need to have as much tissue as possible from the start so that pathologists don't have a cytology specimen. They have a real biopsy and they can tell you whether this is a squamous cell tumor, whether this is an adenocarcinoma, and then they can take some of the residual tissue, and they can do the mutation testing and all sorts of things like that.
0: So are there situations where you go back and try to get more tissue, or particularly people who don't have adenocarcinoma, because it seems like they kind of have more options?
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that every situation is, of course, dependent upon the patient that's sitting in front of you and what symptoms they have and whether you have the time to go back and get more tissue, or whether there's... Sometimes I think that there's even a rationale to go back and get more tissue to make the best treatment decision. And also there's a rationale to help with the patient's symptoms. How many patients present to us with malignant pleural effusions who can sometimes be best managed with a surgical procedure to drain their pleural fluid and get additional material and pleuridise them to take care of that problem, get you additional tissue, and help you make a lot of decisions in the future.
0: So, Anne, how long has it been since he presented?
1: This man has been our patient since 2008. And so he's still alive on maintenance therapy. So
0: can you talk about how he was treated and also how he and his wife and his family evolved over the last two years?
1: So it's interesting. One of the things I neglected to tell you is this man lives over two hours from our center, which many of you face that challenge in major comprehensive cancer centers in a city that people travel to you or fly into you for their treatment. And this man in fact does. When he lives just down the road from one of the memorial satellite centers, he chose to come to the city for treatment. So the two-hour commute after two years has caused great fatigue on both him and his family and great expense, which also many of us at the bedside hear about the expense of what it costs to get cancer treatment in America. That being said, he continues on therapy. The challenges of maintenance therapy psychologically, because he's waiting for the other shoe to drop. He's waiting for recurrent disease. He's waiting for tumor growth. He can hardly breathe for 48 hours until he gets that CAT scan report. And we try to schedule our CAT scans just to almost buckled to our visit. However, you know, we still need a radiologist to help interpret the exam.
0: Now what was his initial treatment?
1: His initial treatment is cisplatinum, pematraxin, and bevacizumab.
0: And how did he do with that?
1: You know, he did very well. He did have some renal insufficiency related to cisplatin. That was one reason to stop the cisplatin was because of kidney function related to platin. And another reason was he developed hypertension. He came as a hypertensive patient. That was part of his past medical history. However, uh, cumulative effect toxicity of the bevacizumab caused him to develop severe hypertension or acute severe hypertension.
0: And Primo, what about the choice of platinum agent? We know that cisplatinum, which was given in this patient, generally is more toxic than carbo. When you're dealing with metastatic non-small cell, a lot of people use carbo in terms of a palliation. Adjuvant, much more likely to use cis. How do you think through which platinum to use? This is a young man who's symptomatic. I'm sure they were thinking we want to do everything we can to
3: kind of make them feel better. Sure, you're digging up an old, old argument here. This is all they talked about,
0: you know, like cis- much chemo.
3: <laughs> the cisplatin, carboplatin issue has been brewing for 20 years now. And in general, we all believe that cisplatin is the better platinum. However, in the metastatic setting where the treatment goals are palliative, we tend to gravitate towards carboplatin because it's much easier to deliver less chair time, and has less renal toxicity, and you can dose it according to the patient's creatinine clearance. So in the metastatic setting, we are perfectly comfortable offering carboplatin-based chemotherapy. And if you think about it, the label for bevacizumab in the United States is in combination with carboplatin and paclitaxel. Not with a cisplatin-pemetrexed doublet like was given in this case. It's with carboplatin-paclitaxel. Although it's been studied with both. Sure. Having said that, I think it's perfectly reasonable to combine bevacizumab or Avastin with any platinum-based doublet in the metastatic setting. It's an individualized decision.
0: So, Greg, the patient asks, you know, I've got hypertension already. You know, I'm kind of concerned about getting bevacizumab. How much extra benefit am I going to really get by adding the Bevacisma? How would you answer?
4: Well, I think that that's a difficult question, but I think that the way I always approach questions like that, where patients ask you about something that's a potential problem, so in this case, hypertension, or we're going to talk about in a minute the pulmonary hemorrhage risk, these are potential problems that grade 3 hypertension in the ECOG 4599 trial, which is worsening of the current hypertension where you need to add more medicine, grade 3 hypertension was about 7% in that trial. So we're looking at a risk of something that's about 7-8%, and so in the grand scheme of things, that's a pretty low-risk problem. And we know from the big trial that there was an overall survival benefit when it was given with carboplatin paclitaxel. When it was given with other chemotherapy regimens, there's definitely been a progression-free survival benefit. So there are real benefits in terms of shrinking the tumor, reducing symptoms, and in some cases, making the patient live longer. So I think that those are real possibilities, and that while the risks are there, they're relatively small.
0: So, Anne, we'll be talking about bevacizumab tomorrow also with breast cancer, and if we were doing symposium on renal cell cancer, ovarian cancer, and amazingly, glioblastoma, primary brain cancer, the drugs used approved and all those and used and a lot more. But the only cancer that really you run into the scary, scary problem that I know about of pulmonary hemorrhage is lung cancer. And certainly a patient, was this man the kind of person or his wife the kind of person who was going on the web and bringing in printouts for you or just like tell me what's going on?
1: Yes, you know it's a poor prognostic sign when they download the photo of their physician and bring it to the visit. <laughs> so, so, and that's just the top of the pile of paper that comes printed. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, yes, he was very savvy. And again, he had sought care at other centers prior to coming to Memorial Sloan Kettering. So, yes, he was very savvy at the web. And,
0: so what do you say? And here's what the audience said. A quarter weren't too clear about what to say. And you can see... What would you say to a patient, or what did you say to this man? I don't know. Did you proactively kind of bring up the issue of the possibility of pulmonary hemorrhage to him?
1: Again, we pre-select patients because patients with central tumors should not be selected to receive bevacizumab because of what we know from clinical trial data. So, in fact, this man met the criteria to safely receive bevacizumab.
0: So, you know, sometimes we have to, like, integrate our experience and the literature and what we hear at meetings and just give the patient our best answer what would you say to a patient like this who's been carefully selected? They say, What's the chance I'm going to die from a pulmonary hemorrhage? Ann?
1: As Dr. Riley said, it's a potential risk, and we try not to focus on the potential, but the real data. Potential.
0: And he goes, I don't want potential, I want a number. Can you give him a number? <laughs> Primo, what number would you give him? It's less than
3: 2%.
1: Yeah.
3: Except if it's your patient. <laughs> I mean, that, it's the 1% that kills you. We have to remember that these are not easy drugs. I mean, we tend to think that they're angiogenesis inhibitors. They're going to be easy. You have to be on top of things and be able to advise the patient that even though the risk of a fatal hemorrhage is small, it's there. It's finite. In the original study in lung cancer patients, the phase 2 randomized trial, where they discovered that in squamous cell carcinoma, the risk was unacceptable, 31% had either severe or fatal hemorrhage, pulmonary hemorrhage, which then excluded those patients in the phase three trials. In that original trial, about 2.3% of patients with adenocarcinoma, non-squamous, experienced a fatal or severe pulmonary hemorrhage. So I agree with Anne. You can't discount it, even though it's a small number. You can't discount it. You have to advise patients and tell them that there is a finite risk for a fatal bleeding event. You mentioned
0: that, quote, these drugs aren't easy, but yet they're coming in the backdrop of chemotherapy. I mean, this man got cisplatinum, which is not an easy drug. Greg, my impression, again, we hear about Bev, and you see people on Bevacizumab with, you know, 10 different kinds of tumors. My impression is, particularly when you get to the non-chemo phase of Bev, that kind of reminds me of trastuzumab. It's an antibody from a quality of life point of view. These patients seem to do pretty well. Is that your
4: take? No, it's absolutely true. And people like to differentiate. And they say, this is Avastin. This isn't chemo. You tell them, okay, you can go over and get the chemo now. What? I'm not getting chemo today. No, I'm getting Avastin. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's, it's definitely true.
0: Now, When he switched, he started out with CIS, PEM, and BEV. Then he got switched. And again, as has been pointed out, this is not like Totally experimental, but not 100% proven. How did his quality life change, if at all, once he got off the cis?
1: He was terrific, you know, less fatigue, renal function improved, so less side effect from that. His hypertension actually leveled out to a level where the medicines that we were finally giving him were actually helping control his hypertension. And what it takes to give cisplatin in the ambulatory setting with the education of hydration pre and the delayed antiemetics post, so he was so happy not to get dexamethasone and other supportive meds, so he was very happy to give up a lot, including the platinum.
0: Wendy, a lot of these patients will go on to, once they get chemo and bevacizumab, then the chemo will be stopped after a certain period of time, and then the bevacizumab is continued. What do you see quality of life at that point, and what about the hypertension that sometimes happens?
2: Most patients that we've treated with maintenance bevacizumab have done very well. I've only had one person who actually started hemopticizing in my exam room with me, and I couldn't be sure that this wasn't going to lead to a fatal pulmonary event, so I admitted him, and it turned out that he was okay. Again, as Ann said, I think that when people get to maintenance, they feel better, they recover from whatever the side effects of therapy have been, and begin to get their energy back and do the things they want. Like Anne, we're in a rural setting, so patients often travel three to four hours to come to us, and that is very fatiguing, and there are not a lot of other options in New Hampshire. But other than the travel, the maintenance part of therapy is usually tolerated well. If they begin to have symptoms, then, of course, that decision or they get tired. We've had people on maintenance for a year that really begin to feel that the travel, they just want to stop, and they want a period without any treatment at all, and that's a good choice.
0: Primo, what's your experience with hypertension? What we hear in a variety of diseases where bevacizumab is used is that, quote, it's pretty easy to control. Is that your own experience?
3: Yeah, but you have to stay on top of it. Just like any angiogenesis inhibitor, bevacizumab will induce some amount of blood pressure elevation. You have to stay on top of it because there are Subsequent events due to hypertension that may be more difficult to manage. An example would be RPLS, which is a severe manifestation associated with hypertension. It's called reversible posterior leukencephalopathy syndrome. These patients present at the ED with seizures, systolic blood pressures in the 200s, and, but you don't want your patient to get to that point. You need to manage the hypertension. So just
0: to put this in context, how many patients have you seen with that syndrome in the last couple of years? How many patients have you seen with major or fatal bleeds
3: in the last couple of years? Any? I have seen two patients with fatal bleeds and three patients with RPLS, not all related to bevacizumab, though. And, of course... A couple of those were on TKIs. So. You
0: know, that's just your practice. Who knows? But how many patients overall do you think you've treated with bevacizumab? I-
3: I don't know how many. There's a bunch. A lot. There's a lot. All right.
0: Well, that kind of fits in with maybe 1% or 2%. And, Greg, maybe just if you could briefly comment on the issue of, quote, maintenance therapy. Yes. And, again, this is something that just came on the scene really in the last two years. This is a study that's actually trying to see whether what this man got is better than just using bevacizumab alone, so to try to resolve that question... And
4: I think a really hard part about understanding maintenance chemotherapy is understanding the terminology. This patient, for instance, he got cisplatin, pemetrexib, bevacizumab as his initial treatment, but then renal insufficiency led them to drop the cisplatin. So is that really maintenance pemetrexed bevacizumab, or is that just continuation of his initial therapy and dropping out the medicine that was causing him trouble? Who knows what it really is? But the maintenance issue is an important one, and the recent studies which have shown that pemetrexed is a good maintenance therapy were all done in patients who got initial therapy that was different than pemetrexid. So they got carbotaxol initially and then went on to pemetrexid. But in those studies, giving pemetrexid as a maintenance really led to astonishing benefits in terms of overall survival. You know, the biggest benefits we've ever seen in clinical trials, like a five-month difference in overall survival for patients with adenocarcinoma who get pemetrexid maintenance versus those who don't.
0: And Ann, what do you see in terms of pemetrexid maintenance, again, quality of life,
1: Their quality of life is well-maintained. For those of you who know about wait time and chair time, pemetrexate infuses over 10 minutes. So right there, everybody, you know, the managers of those units applaud such an infusion time. However, the long-term effects, and we're seeing more and more because, again, new drug, new drug in a maintenance setting. So one of the biggest challenges that we're seeing is skin rash, is particularly in lower extremity, swelling and skin rash. And there was just a case report not too long ago published with actual photos of what this looks like. So we're admitting patients with a questionable cellulitis or to rule out DVT, because that may be one of your initial assessments of why to examine these patients. But lower extremity, their legs get red, they get swollen, they get hot, and very much looks like a cellulitis. We've biopsied some of these patients. It's been proven that they're not infected. It's really an inflammatory response to a drug is what their pathology comes back as. So it's a reasonable to stop the pemetrexed, unfortunately, in the setting, even with dose reduction.
0: Greg, the one thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, you wonder, you have a person whose survival, I mean, he actually has maybe even done better than the average person, should even worry about hypertension. They came up with 140 over 90 as a target. Is that kind of what you do, and is that... I mean, this is not prevention
4: for 20 years from now, obviously, but is that kind of what you use? I think that uh, every guideline is going to be a relatively strict thing. And in practice, we all loosen things up a bit. So my cutoff is a little bit higher than 140 over 90. And I think that the real thing is is thinking about your patient and trying to prevent some things that we're not thinking about long-term issues. You're absolutely right. But we are thinking about some short-term issues. If you have malignant hypertension, you can have strokes and things that are pretty bad for quality of life. And so we want to, prevent that. But like Lucky said, if you stay on top of it and you monitor your blood pressure and you keep a close eye on it, you're actually able to prevent patients from even missing doses. I think you know, I can think of maybe a handful of patients over the last few years where I've had to hold the Avastin because of hypertension. Because if you just keep an eye on it, you can prevent that problem.
0: One final, final question, really. There's <laughs> so many things I want to ask you all, but Ann, can you just sort of talk a little bit about how this man has evolved personally? What's his state of mind evolved into over the last couple of years?
1: Well, he actually talks about longevity, which he never did before. He used to just go day by day, week by week, and he had a, If you look at his chart, his telephone talks, he called daily, every other day, every week, and that has certainly lessened in the trajectory of his disease. Our biggest challenge as an oncology nurse, too, is we are so ingrained to talk about neutropenia, nausea, vomiting, alopecia, and yet now we're learning we have to become experts not only in skin management of some of these drugs that we're talking about today, but also hypertension, and I had to go back to the hypertension course. But the nurse is also concerned about adherence and compliance to their antihypertensive meds. And here I have, I told you, an plasty, He's a cop. He wears the t-shirt into clinic. And so the side effects of the antihypertensive, such as erectile dysfunction, are also challenging in the quality of his life. So that comes up a lot too, mostly on the phone. It doesn't happen face-to-face in clinics. So those phone calls are a lot of...
0: You know, with the evolution of biologic therapy, you hear oncologists talking more about the fact that they've got to learn the primary care stuff again. Hypertension, dermatology we're going to talk about today. Tomorrow, cardiology with heart failure related to trastuzumab. And, you know, these people are getting their primary care from us. Wendy, let's go into your patient. You know, they were looking at these cases going, you know, this is real life. And there's no case that's kind of like very straightforward and easy. And I think your case is a good example. I remember in med school hearing about HPO, but I don't know if I've ever saw a patient who had one, and this patient did. So can you talk a little bit about this man, how he presented?
2: He's really an interesting case. He's 48 years old, so Ann's first patient, we said he was 64, and that was young. So this is a very young man who's presenting with non-small cell lung cancer. And he actually had gone to his primary care several times because he was having pain and swelling in his joints, his fingers. And that led to CAT scan, which then showed that he had lung cancer. And so he's diagnosed with hypertrophic pulmonary osteoarthropathy, or HPOA. And
0: How did he, that manifest? What symptoms did he have? He
2: had pain and swelling, and it was frustrating for him because he really wasn't getting worked up until it was just really persistent, and then that led to the chest X-ray and then to a CT, which showed that he had lung cancer once he was biopsied.
0: Greg, I don't know how often you see HPO. Like I said, I don't remember ever seeing a patient. What is it? In this case, it actually went away and came back, right? Mm-hmm.
4: Right. And actually that's kind of common because the cause of this problem, we don't understand it at all. We don't understand what causes it. We don't understand the real pathophysiology of it, but we know that it's related to pulmonary problems. In this case, it's related to a lung cancer. And if you treat that underlying problem, then you can resolve the symptom of HPO. And so is it considered like a paraneoplastic syndrome, yeah. like the tumor's secreting something into the bloodstream? That's how we conceive of it. And whether that's the truth or not, we don't really know, but that's how we conceive of it. And it is, I think we all see clubbing. It's kind of along the same lines as clubbing. The pathophysiology may be similar, but clubbing is something that's far more commonly seen in our patients. But we definitely see patients like this. And like Wendy suggests, it's often a very frustrating thing for the patient because they've gone to a couple doctors before they get diagnosed. You know, they've seen their primary care physician who tries them on a leave for a couple months, and then maybe the primary care physician gets frustrated that they can't solve the problem and sends them to a rheumatologist, and if the rheumatologist isn't particularly savvy, they may end up trying things like all these new rheumatology agents before they realize that this is something else going on.
0: So, Wendy, can you talk a little bit more about this man in terms of him as a person and how you kind of, approach? I mean, again, 48 years old with lung cancer.
2: Right. Well, he had undergone surgical resection about a year ago, and all of his symptoms resolved. So, his joint pain and the swelling, and he was feeling better, and then the symptoms returned. So, obviously, he came back into us, and he had had stage 1a disease, so he did not receive any adjuvant chemotherapy. So he was then referred back to medical oncology when these symptoms reoccurred and went under staging. And his work is that he's a carpenter, and his work is not frequent. So he struggles financially. He's divorced. He's with his significant other. And he was not able to work, again, because he couldn't use the equipment. He was having pain. The subsequent evaluation showed that he actually indeed had reoccurred in the right hilum. And then treatment was started again. So that was very interesting. So he was scared, and obviously, because he knew what the recurrence of these symptoms meant.
0: And getting back to what we were talking about with the first patient, now he was a smoker and still is. <laughs>
2: he still is.
0: What was his thinking in terms of the smoking and this situation?
2: Well... For me, I am a tobacco treatment specialist as well, and so I offer upfront treatment to all my patients. And I think that probably there was obviously a side addiction and withdrawal for this patient that he has some underlying pain disorders as well because in the subsequent treatment of this patient getting concurrent chemoradiation and the use of opioids for his endophagia, We had a hard time getting him off those opioids, and he continues to smoke. So I think there's a measure of pain in that.
0: So, Anne, the patient says, well, you know, I've got lung cancer. You know, why should I stop smoking? I enjoy it.
1: The first thing you say to that patient is, if you stop smoking, you will live longer. And that is a proven fact. With or without cancer, he will live longer. The struggle with this guy is he's 48 years old, so his birthday is very close to mine. So you look at the age of the patient, and again, the challenge, you know longevity, and particularly we're so influenced in living longer in this country, although we're not so good at taking care of our geriatric people. That being said, it's very challenging to take care of these young people with lung cancer. And again, somebody who the transience of their support system, even work, you work, know, we all talk about the therapy of work and how significant that is for all of us. But that being said, so try to get the support and structure into a 48-year-old faced with a potentially life-threatening disease, although his staged helps us lengthen his life.
0: So this man got chemo, radiation therapy. Typically when we do that, it's at first diagnosis. They have locally advanced disease. So it's not typical here in that it was actually a recurrence, although he got that treatment. So, Greg, where are we right now in terms of trying to make treatment for patients like this better? What are some of the issues that have been explored research-wise? I know there's some things we've tried that didn't work. For example, we tried... We're going to talk about EGFR TKIs, and that's been looked at in this chemo radiation setting. It didn't seem to work where are we right now in trying to move that
4: 20%
0: number up?
4: Right, so people have tried adding these new biologic agents. That's certainly one area of excitement, and you mentioned EGFR-TKIs, and those didn't seem to help in preliminary studies. Bevacizumab has been associated with some toxicity problems in this setting, and so that's not really being incorporated much more into these studies. But the thing that really holds out promise are two things. One is the dose of radiation. Most of us practice in medical oncology settings, and so we don't think about the radiation very much. We think somebody's taking care of that. You know, it's standard. Everybody gets the same thing. But there are lots of things that people in the radiation oncology world are doing to improve things. One is more focused radiation treatments with better planning systems to allow delivery of Focused doses that reduce side effects because they're not hitting important normal structures like the esophagus. And the other thing is just to do standard fractionated radiation to higher doses. And so this is a clinical trial that we're participating in Memorial. This is RTOG0617. And it's actually looking at two things. And I love clinical trials like this, where we get the answers to two questions kind of at the same time.
0: So Primo, can you talk about those two issues and what we know about it right now?
3: So this trial does try to answer two questions. One is the dose of radiation required for locally advanced lung cancer, and that's 74 versus 60 gray. And the second question it's asking is whether the addition of cetuximab will potentiate radiation therapy and make it work better, just like it did for head and neck cancer. Those are two important questions. What the point that we're concerned about with these experiments is the toxicity, because with the increased dose and the addition of a biologic agent, we're willing to bet the toxicities will increase in those patients receiving the experimental treatment.
0: But Although I guess in head and neck, it doesn't seem like it's made the toxicity that much worse, if
3: at all. And that's probably because there's no esophagus or lung in the field. The problem, of course, with lung cancer is that there's lung in the radiation field. Do
0: we know specifically about radiation therapy and cetuximab in lung cancer in terms of toxicity?
3: No, I think we have phase 2 data showing that it can be done. We will need phase 3 data, though, to know the broad implications of combining cetuximab, radiation, chemotherapy in a locally advanced lung cancer setting.
0: We want to just also briefly touch on the issue of the management of the patient getting chemo radiation therapy. You were seeing a lot of these people, and my take is this is not an easy thing for a patient to get through. What do you see in terms of side effects?
1: this is it. Difficulty swallowing and ability to take on fluids as well as nutrition, hydration are the challenges. So it's roughly about, I have to guess here because my radiation oncology nurses here would know better than me, but it's about 20% of patients require hospitalization and or enteral feedings. Greg,
0: what are the other symptomatic problems that you see in addition to esophagitis with chemo radiation therapy and lung cancer? What about problems with breathing and pneumonitis?
4: Yeah, I think the two biggest problems are esophagitis. And pneumonitis. And just to back up for a second to the esophagitis, the patient, as they're going through this, they see that day of the last radiation as sort of the best day. you know, It'll all get better then. But we have to remind the patients that it doesn't get better on the last day of radiation, and it continues to get worse for a couple of weeks thereafter. And so that's a really important thing for patients. And then the other big issue is the pneumonitis. And the pneumonitis is not something that happens during the course of the radiation. It's not something that happens in the weeks afterwards. It comes up three months, six months, nine months later when that patient comes in with shortness of breath, fevers for the last six weeks, and nobody really knows what's going on. They check a CAT scan, and there's no pneumonia and then we realized, oh, this patient had radiation six months ago and this is a serious problem. It can be treated. It can be treated relatively well, but it's not something that goes away easily and it often involves high-dose steroids for quite some time.
0: So any other comments, Wendy, in terms of this patient?
2: Actually, this is not a patient who calls, but his girlfriend does call. So that's a big red flag when we pick up the phone and know she's calling about him. And she called her to say that he was short of breath, he wasn't able to work, he was coughing a lot, and he had actually cut down his amount of cigarettes because he was having so much trouble breathing. So we brought him in, and sure enough, he had radiation pneumonitis, and we started him on about 60 of prednisone as a starting dose and titrated him down. He actually had to be rechallenged with steroids, and I think it's because as he felt better and could breathe better, he started smoking more. And so that was aggravating the whole situation. So part of always an education, so an initial visit just to teach a patient about tobacco and quitting is about an hour long. So trying to fit this in with him, we've been doing this consistently. And education is everything. And for me, when I find that patients really understand what's happening, why they're addicted, and the receptors. So, can I give a small demonstration?
0: Absolutely. Go ahead. Go for it.
2: So, what I explain to patients is 10 to 16 seconds in through the mouth, down through the lung, through the heart comes nicotine to the brain. And it comes just like that 10 to 16 seconds. It goes. In a complex pathway in the brain, it binds to what we call the alpha-beta-4 nicotine acetylcholine receptors. Once nicotine has bound to these receptors, and I don't give that big, long name, and depending on the patient's education level and understanding, we make it so that they can understand why they are addicted, why this is so hard. These receptors send a signal in the brain to the VTA and the accumbens to release the good-feel hormone called dopamine. Now, dopamine, we've all heard, is that neurotransmitter hormone that makes us feel relaxed, right? You get the high when you exercise, runners. Well, I exercise five days a week. I know I don't look like I exercise five days a week. <laughs> but I do it for the very same reason, is that I feel good after I torture myself. I feel much better, relaxed. Well, you look very balanced to me. No, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Got my going on. <laughs> The problem for smokers is if this neurotransmitter, it will be used up because it's in excess, it's not in balance, it gets used up, that the two, there's about five neurotransmitters that come in, but the two most important ones are norepinephrine. And in my neck of the woods, if you get startled, you almost hit a deer or crash a car or I watch my son drive, you know, one of those things. Then, you know, you get nauseated, scared edgy, and that's what that hormone causes. And the other one is cortisol, and we all hear it on TV related to fat, but actually in smoking it's related to memory. So that patient that walks by the truck where he always smokes will be remembering that he should have a cigarette because his, probably his dopamine levels are going down. And this is kind of simplistic, but this is kind of what's happening in their brain. And once individuals understand that, they get it. And you offer them ways to keep them from going through that so that we can get them off cigarettes. So that's one of the strategies is really education. I have to say, just finishing my DNP, and my project was teaching oncology nurses about smoking cessation that most of us don't feel so comfortable with it. It's one of those things, how do I broach this? Oh, the patient has stage 4 cancer, why bother? When, as Ann said earlier, we know we're going to prolong their life, prolong the quality of their life, and decrease metastasis if we can get patients to stop smoking. So it's really an underappreciated arena for health promotion for our cancer patients.
0: Well, there's also the woman sitting there getting adjuvant therapy of breast cancer who might be smoking, the colon cancer patient who's, Mm -hmm. you know, going through all these things. And maybe that's a patient we ought to be thinking about, too. Absolutely.
1: You
0: know, I'm sure you could present patients who got adjuvant therapy for another tumor and continue to smoke. And what about pharmacologic support? What's the algorithm that you'll use if a patient says, yeah, I really want to stop, I've tried... I can't do it, how do you think it through?
1: Well, thank God I come from a center where we have tobacco treatment specialists as a specialty service. so they right you going to they're say that. Referred. We send them
0: to the smoking place. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> but,
1: but, no. the, but the truth is, never miss the opportunity to teach smoky cessation. When it comes up, you seize the moment. And it does take time. But truthfully, that patient has just asked you to help them stop smoking. And so stop, drop, and roll. You've got to help that patient seize the moment in the moment to teach that patient. And there are plenty of opportunities and offers for patients with smoky cessation and support. And again, it's figuring out what triggers are the patient you know I constantly can imitate the patient because their fingers to their mouth you know they just miss that habit so, you know, perhaps a Nicotrol inhaler is going to be the first thing that they're going to look towards. Patches, you know, we can't confuse their patches with their estrogen patches and their fentanyl patches and their lidoderm patches, but, you know, patch also helps. But titrating the patch to the number of milligrams that the patients are smoking, and again, patients, you try to get them to be as honest as they can with how many cigarettes they smoke a day. And I once had a very famous patient who was an actor, and he told us he smoked five packs a day, And you think holy cow his days are 48 hours long cuz that's a hell of a lot of cigarettes to get in in 24 hours but There's the truth of the matter to is so he right could there. actually he'd read his script and he'd have one out and the pack could be going it was such a mindless habit for him. So he was very truthful. And so a 21 milligram nicotine patch wasn't going to cut it for a five pack a day smoker. So the challenge is of asking the truth of that patient.
4: I would just add to the benefits of smoking cessation. I mean, I think we often underestimate that. But recently there was a meta-analysis in the British Medical Journal, which looked at early stage lung cancer and smoking cessation. And they found benefits to smoking cessation that were greater than the ones we see for chemotherapy adjuvant chemotherapy for lung cancer. Smoking cessation is more important and more beneficial than adjuvant chemotherapy. But
0: I mean, in a patient with advanced lung cancer? Well, No,
4: this is for early stage patients. Early stage, This is for okay. early stage, adjuvant chemotherapy versus smoking Got cessation.
3: It. And it has implications for patients taking erlotinib, for example. Smoking patients tend to have elevated enzymes that metabolize erlotinib, so you'll get less benefit from erlotinib if you're an active smoker. Wow, that's fascinating. I haven't heard that one.
0: We're getting some great questions from the audience. We're going to try to deal with them. But what about antidepressants, Wendy? Are they helpful at all in smoking cessation? They
2: really are. And I talk to cancer patients or my lung cancer patients all the time that it's not unusual when you've been given a difficult diagnosis to have a situational depression over that. And so this gentleman actually did not want to have any intervention in terms of depression, which I think was part of what was going on with the recurrence but i'd like to say one statement that he made to me and that is that i keep intervening with him with smoking cessation and he said the fact that you keep talking to me about smoking cessation means that i still have life worth living so if you can take that point home it is worth the intervention to do it
0: all right let's go on to our next case and if you can kind of present that, and then we'll have Greg kind of talk a little bit about how, at Memorial, a patient like this would get managed.
1: This is a 63-year-old woman. She had a 25-pack-year history of smoking, and she presented last summer in June with a complaint of occasional cough and throat irritation. That was her issue. Throat irritation was her complaint. And you said
0: 25-pack years. When was it? Like a long time ago? long time
1: or? ago. long time ago. She's more than 30 years not smoking.
0: So 30 years ago, she smoked for a while?
1: She smoked as a teen into her early college. Right. Very, very. I very
0: guess smokers. you probably see as many
4: ex-smokers as smokers, I would think, or not. I would say we see more patients who quit smoking than patients who are currently smoking. And what's the dynamic there? And we
0: talked before about the patient who feels terrible, but now they've maybe they've gone through hell to quit and they have lung cancer. How did this woman, how did she react to it?
1: Shock. Absolute shock that she was had a condition most likely related to smoking is what we've and trained the country to think about, although she was in absolute shock and could not get over the fact that she only smoked you know, that much out of her life, and here she was with stage 4 lung cancer. It's interesting because she came to New York from Florida. Her husband came up for a very sophisticated spine surgery at another hospital, and she was with him, and so this cough and throat irritation, her son said to her, you need to see a doctor. And so it was by going to a strange doctor who she had never met before to get a diagnosis of lung cancer, and here she was. Her CAT scan actually showed us that she had bilateral disease, and she also had bronchorrhea, which is when she coughed, she brought up a lot of bubbly white sputum, and so she was being treated for chronic upper respiratory infections through the course of her meeting the resident in the hallway at the hospital where her husband was, giving her a dose of antibiotics and curbside into an urgent care center. She got another dose of antibiotics because she could actually produce the cough in front of the physician or nurse practitioner, and so she was being treated for infection when in fact bronchorrhea is a condition of alveolar carcinoma where patients can actually cough up and good morning, but a cupful of white, foamy sputum.
0: Did she have any other symptoms that you thought were attributable to the tumor, any shortness of breath? No shortness
1: it? of breath. She's very active. She's, do you know the character Molly Shannon does, Sally O'Malley? You know, she kicks all the time. Well, that's this person. She's in there and vibrant and, again, living the lifestyle in Florida, very active, dancing woman. She's a former flight attendant, and most of them, I'm going to guess maybe 80% of this room got here via airplane. So her other significant part of her life was smokers to the left, jokers to the right. But truthfully, on Air Italia, in the day when smoking was allowed on airplanes, to the left side of the plane was the smoking people, and to the right side were the non-smokers. And that's how you get your seat assignment. Can you imagine flying in a plane like that today? So And again, here she was, the stewardess, and that was her title at that time. You know, Did she
0: attribute this to either being you know, exposed to passive smoke as a flight attendant or her prior smoking or just unrelated hat in her she own She
1: completely mind. wants, you know, Whitesburg, Jacoby and Myers, the attorneys that advertise on TV to take on her case because she truly believes that her lung cancer is from her secondhand exposure in the airline industry to get Wendy, her you know, that's
0: another dynamic we have to deal with, which is the patient who's a non-smoker, maybe their spouse is a smoker, and maybe anger that they feel about that. Do you see that?
2: Tremendous amount of anger. And Wendy? Upsetting. Yeah, um, it's really hard when one person in the family or that family dyad continues to smoke and the other person has quit. There can be a lot of anger about exposing them. A lot of families, though, I find have negotiated that out so that the person at least is smoking outside.
0: And Greg, just a word. Anne mentioned bronchoalveolar Carcinoma. Now, and this patient was not thought to have that. They were thought to have adenocarcinoma. Is that correct?
1: Correct, in her what's pathology. The,
0: what's the difference between, Greg, bronchoalveolar and adenocarcinoma clinically and
4: treatment-wise? So bronchoalveolar cancer is really uh, poorly understood type of cancer. It's really a subtype of adenocarcinoma, and there are a variety of ways in which we really describe it, and it's a term that's been used and abused, really, over the last five to ten years. When you look at it under the microscope, the World Health Organization has a very clear definition of what BAC is. It looks like an adenocarcinoma, but there's no real invasion into blood vessels. There's no invasion into the airway, and so it's just lining the airway. But in practice, it's become a bit more common. We Look at an adenocarcinoma under the microscope, and if it has some of those features of bronchovular cancer, or if when we look at it on the CT scan, we see this sort of diffuse pattern, sometimes people think of it as a BAC. If you use the very pure definition of BAC, it probably represents about 1% of lung cancer. But if you liberalize it a bit more, you end up having maybe 20% of patients with lung cancer having what, a clinical diagnosis of BAC. And those clinical syndromes of bronchorrhea and diffuse disease can be quite difficult for patients. Both the bronchorrhea is just a really persistent problem that really gets in the way of everyday life. And if there's very widespread disease, even in people who had minimal smoking history, their lung function really can drop significantly as a result of that.
0: And, and of course, like HPO, the best way to deal with a symptom like bronchorrhea would be to attack the tumor. But of course, there are situations where you can't do it or you can maybe you might have to wait for the treatment to work. What about like chest physiotherapy and local measures? Does that help at all?
1: It actually does indeed. Yes. And a lot of patients, particularly in the morning time when they wake up, they can expectorate a tremendous amount of fluid. We have patients who flip upside down to drain. And there's actually, if you've read the SkyMall magazine, you can buy that tilt table in the SkyMall magazine, but people actually feel better. And so they'll lay across their bed and hang upside down and feel like they're actually draining their lung to be able to cough up this expectorated phlegm.
0: Maybe we can kind of come up to date on what happened to this patient and then talk a little bit about the biology, which is so fascinating here.
1: So this patient's tumor was tested for EGFR mutation. And in fact, she did have an exon 19 deletion into her mutation and was started on her lot Nibis first line treatment. And in five days, her cough was dramatically better.
0: Five days. Five days. Wow. So we want to talk a little bit about EGFR mutations and why you all chose to do i would say again you probably would have given this lady chemo bevacizumab two years ago what do you think primo yeah probably. okay so now when we have this and phenotype and also the issue of even testing it's my impression i mean yeah memorial all your places they're going to test routinely for egfr just we were talking before about er and her too you guys just do it routinely out in the community you don't see that actually happening What about testing for EGFR mutation, and do you need it? And we asked the audience here. You can see it was kind of split. Is it just people with mutations who can benefit from an EGFR
3: TKI like Erlotinib? So in the frontline untreated setting, I think the data is pretty strong that if the patient has an EGFR mutated tumor, frontline Erlotinib, or a frontline EGFR TKI, would be a better choice than frontline chemotherapy. There was a large randomized trial done in Asia. It was called the IPASS trial that demonstrated that in that trial, which randomized patients to Iressa, which is the cousin of erlotinib, to Iressa versus chemotherapy, it's those patients with the EGFR mutation who tended to benefit greatly from frontline Iressa. And in contrast, those with EGFR who did not have EGFR mutations tended to be harmed by frontline IRESA. Those patients benefited from chemotherapy. So that's why we really need to know what the EGFR mutation status is at the start of therapy or at the time of therapeutic decision-making. And I think the question of who to
4: test is really a big, important issue, and I think a lot of people out in the community, if they're testing at all, are trying to focus their testing in on people who never smoke cigarettes, or maybe they're only doing women, or, you know, if they're using some of these clinical characteristics to enrich for the patients who should get testing. And I think that that's probably a misguided approach, you know, I think that... Testing for EGFR mutations is easy if you have the material, and so you can do it, and the costs are real, but most insurance companies cover these things, and it's not a big barrier. And the reason to test for these things is because some patients you don't think are going to have an EGFR mutation lung cancer do. Smoking doesn't prevent you from getting an EGFR mutation lung cancer. I think our current institutional record is a patient with a 110-pack-year history of smoking who had an EGFR mutation and responded to erlotinib and did quite well with it. So really, all patients should get the benefit of that testing if it's possible.
3: And the turnaround time, Neil, is pretty quick now. What is it now, would you say? It's less than a week. Really? There are a few commercial vendors out there where you could send a tissue to, and they'll get it back to you within a week. And
0: that's certainly comparable to ER and HER2 and KRAS and colon cancer. But I think
3: like those diseases, where we have to get
4: is we have to get to the point where when you see the oncologist and they order the EGFR mutation testing and it takes a week, you have to take five steps back so that when the pathology gets done from the initial biopsy, it automatically gets sent for EGFR mutation testing. You know, like Lucky was referring to earlier, you'd never have a patient with breast cancer who gets their breast cancer biopsy and they send you the pathology report and says adenocarcinoma and then you would have to fill out a requisition to ask for ER, PR and then another requisition to do HER2 testing, that would never happen and it shouldn't happen in lung cancer either. At our institution we call it reflex testing, anybody with an adenocarcinoma of the lung material automatically gets sent for EGFR mutation testing.
3: And if there's anything to be learned, I think, from this session is that we need to change our culture with lung cancer. We can no longer be nihilistic about it, and we ought to treat it like we do other solid tumors.
0: I mean, if somebody said to you, well, there's only a 1% chance we can detect this, and we're going to talk about what the mutation is and what it means, but there's only a 1% chance, so why should we invest the money in testing? Somebody said that to me. I said, are you kidding me? If there's 1 in 1,000 chance, I mean, you know, just run the test. Mm-hmm.
4: Well, and the cost of testing has to really be compared to the cost of treatment, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the other approach, if you don't test these patients, is to give an empiric trial. Say, you know, give them a month worth of and as all you guys know who've tried to get a patient's coverage for and that stuff's expensive. And if their insurance company isn't covering it, or even if they are covering it, it's a lot of money. I mean, even if they have a 20% copay, that's a 1000 bucks a month for most of these patients. And so a $1,000 test versus a $5,000 one-month prescription for a drug, it really begins to make sense very quickly.
3: And we must emphasize that in the randomized trial that randomized patients to either Iressa or chemotherapy, in those who did not have the mutation, Iressa actually led to some harm in the front well, they set. didn't do as well. They didn't do as We're well. We're going to show
0: that data, but I think we should also clarify it doesn't mean you don't use a drug like erlotinib or gefitinib. It's just the question is, do you use it up front? Up front, correct. And, and I don't know if this patient asked you. I mean, most people have heard about chemotherapy and the idea, okay, I've got unresectable, incurable disease. Don't I need chemo? Or are you just giving me this pill because, you know, it won't make me as sick? or is it actually going to help me more? Did that come up with this woman?
1: It did not come up with this woman because of a lack of education on her part of not being so savvy on the Internet or whatever. But that patient that comes to you and tells you right up front that they want the pill. Versus the intravenous chemo, because that chemo can make you terribly sick. But the truth of the matter is, every drug has side effects. So we have to go back to teaching that patient about the side effect management of a drug like erlotinib. This patient was very willing to understand the ABCs of her lung cancer and understanding exon-19 deletion in a very simplistic way. As a nurse, I teach people exactly, I kind of use my hand as the mutation occurs as a protein on the tumor, and we're going to take this and attack that tumor, the cell's going to die, and you're going to feel better and live longer."
0: So, Greg, can you talk at a pretty basic level about EGFR mutations and what actually they are?
4: I think if we can really boil it down, I think the main thing, the 90% of the time that really matters, is do they have an exon-19 deletion or an EGFR L858R? These are 90%. For an exon 19 deletion, there's a small part of the chromosome that's just sort of dropped out through DNA repair. It dropped out, and when that small part drops out in the 19 deletions or when this other thing called L858R that's a point mutation, one base change in the DNA leads to one change in a protein, when either one of those things happen. It leads to the cancer. This is what caused the cancer in these patients. We know that because if we put it in mice, it makes tumors in the mice. And so these particular mutations cause the cancer and we just so happen to have this drug, this category of drugs, erlotinib and gefitinib, that attack this pathway. And since we know what causes it and we have a drug that hits it, we're sort of in a best case scenario where we can attack the problem.
0: Well, Primo, this also leads into the topic of, quote, oncogene addiction. And, you know, we first heard that with chronic myologic leukemia and imatinib, where people call it magic. I mean, it's amazing. And in a way, is this a similar model where the tumor is, quote, addicted to this altered pathway, and it just so happens that we have agents like gefitinib and erlotinib that block it and inhibit the addiction?
3: Yes, so this is a situation where the tumor becomes addicted to the EGFR mutation and the pathways that it activates. So, the end product of this chromosome change is a protein, the EGFR receptor, that then sticks out of the cell membrane and turns everything on. It just drives the cell to divide, make copies of itself, and the cell becomes addicted to that. It likes to make copies of itself. And as Greg said, we do have drugs that are able to shut that off. And that's why we get these dramatic responses in patients with EGFR-mutated tumors.
0: Although I guess we have to say even though we see tremendous responses, and I guess and this patient was one of them, right? Absolutely. But we don't really think they're cured. What happened with this woman?
1: Patient remains on Erlotinib, 100 milligrams a day, tolerating treatment very well. She did have some complications with dermatologic toxicities, which we were challenged by. Again, this is a woman who used Noxema to wash her face at night and Pond's cold cream as her moisturizer. So, you know, she came with a skin management, thank goodness. As many people, particularly men, don't have any kind of moisturizing skill for their skin. And I mean that in a very nice way because it's a challenge in gender-biased care (laughs) to teach men to moisturize. But that being said, we did have challenges in skin toxicity with her, although she remains fine. I will tell you, we transferred her care back to her home in Florida. We're coming up on one year.
0: Greg, what fraction overall of non-small cell lung
4: cancer is EGFR mutation positive? I think it's at least 10% of patients with lung cancer. If you select out patients who have adenocarcinomas, it's probably 20% of patients with adenocarcinomas have EGFR mutations. And then there are those clinical factors which can bring that number even higher. So never smokers, probably about 50% of them have EGFR mutations.
0: So if you think about it, HER2 and breast cancer and trastuzumab, you're talking about 20% of breast cancer kind of similar to what we're talking about here in terms of EGFR mutations. And Primo, some of these new studies like iPass really showed impressive tumor responses to EGFR TKIs in patients with mutations.
3: What's important to patients is response, you know, seeing tumors shrink in clinic. You could see that in the EGFR mutation positive patients, There's a 71% response rate. You know, that's incredible. And we will start seeing those response rates over and over again as we get more sophisticated in finding these molecular subsets of patients.
0: And that's actually higher than trastuzumab and
3: HER2-positive breast cancer.
0: So what about dermatologic toxicity in the EGFR TKIs like erlotinib? And do you wait for this to happen or do you try to prevent it?
1: We teach prevention, and again, skin moisturizer, my comment earlier about gender bias care, is that getting men to actively participate in a skin care regimen is a big challenge, particularly in the average age of the patient being greater than 70 years of age, to have them not just put aqua velva on their face after they shave. The challenge you can see is that the rash, and it always starts on the face, nose, chin, forehead, so to get gentlemen to shave, and it's very painful, it's pustular, it's papular, the rash challenge and rash management... So we see this all the time, and then the rash can progress. In my institution, we do not give prophylactic antibiotic. We don't give them their allotinib, plus a script for an antibiotic, plus a prescription for skin care. We actually ask the patients to call us to describe the rash. And, again, BR21, there was no CTC criteria for grading rash. So we had this big, gigantic trial, but the rash... Came later because the rash can occur from anywhere from day 10 to day 113 on therapy. So you can have a patient cruising for a couple months, and then all of a sudden, ba-boom, they call you with this postular rash, or they've stopped the drug because of the rash, and you don't know it because of adherence and compliance. We're relying on these people to take these pills at home. That being said, we do educate patients on the potential for the rash. We're very descriptive in describing what the rash is going to look like and how we're going to manage it. And we ask them to be in telephone contact as well as visit to assess the rash, grade the rash, and treat the rash according to grade.
0: And you guys are like the Yankees, you know. You stole the king of dermatologic oncology, Mario Lacouture, from Northwestern University. How would you answer this question, A patient's getting ready to start a lot, Nib, and they say, what's the chance it's going to be a major problem with my skin that we're going to have to either modify the dose or stop the drug? What number would you give them,
1: Ann? Actually, greater than 50% of patients are going to be challenged by skin side effects.
0: Anything that Mario's brought in terms of... man I mean, he's the whole science of the dermatology of oncology. He's kind of like the leader...
1: You know, he just published the mass data for supportive care and looking at best supportive ways to do rash management by a better grading scale. And CTC4 is now available, version 4. So that actually is very specific in grading the rash. So we're very happy to finally have an accurate grading scale that all of us across the continuum of care can use to grade the rash, thereby creating intervention. He is a big believer, I'll be very honest with you, in prescribing prophylactic antibiotics at the prophylactic.
0: time. Prophylactic. Prophylactic. So they start out before they even have a problem. Correct. Which antibiotics?
1: He's a minocycline.
0: Do you think it works?
1: I do, actually. However, you know the biopsies that we did in the early days of 2004, 2005 on this rash actually showed us that minocycline actually doesn't treat the rash. What it does is it treats the inflammation caused by the rash. So in fact. The best treatment for rash is moisturizer. So if you were 16 years old and you had a face full of acne, you were using alcohol and Stridex and Clearasil to dry and dry and dry it out. Drying this rash out only makes it worse. And so patients then get itchy. And again, compliance, they don't want to take the medicine because it causes itchiness. The physical overall body image. When you meet a person with an EGFR rash, what's the first thing you do? You kind of take pity on them and think, "Ooh." And so, for those people in customer service jobs, like lawyers who have to stand in front of a trial jury, and you know, with a rash, is that jury? what Are they going to be thinking about the case, and we thinking about this rash that this person has? People getting on airplanes—that's been a new thing. We have to write letters that they're in fact on an EGFR drug, so that they can get on a plane and not be screened for infection when they're getting I on I've heard a rumors plane. that
0: head and shoulders works on it. Have you ever tried that? You know my colleagues
1: in the southeast part of the country have really promoted head and shoulders as a treatment. We have not found that to be effective. Do you
2: see it in the scalp, the way this man did? You'll find sometimes that patients will get it in the scalp, much more so with some other drugs, though.
0: And in terms of this problem, obviously, Greg, we see this not just with EGFR TKIs, but also maybe even worse with EGFR antibodies, cetuximab. And it seems, again, the numbers are such that it's maybe actually most patients.
4: No, I think for cetuximab, the number is something like 90-plus percent have a significant rash. The number of patients with significant rash with erlotinib is lower. I think that maybe 20% really require a dose reduction. But cetuximab is definitely worse. And I think those patients are the ones where I think we should definitely consider prophylactic maneuvers a bit more strongly. And I think that Mario Lacatores proposed something called the STEP program, which he studied with use of pen- Anatumumab, another EGFR antibody, and this was recently published. And in that small study, he was able to show that by doing prophylactic measures, in that case doxycycline, you definitely can improve the rate of patients who get significant grade two or more rash, and patients are happier. We have a number of ongoing trials using cetuximab, and we try to get Mario involved and do that preventive maneuver from the start. So, Primo,
0: we talked about the EGFR mutation that's particularly common in non smokers. This is only discovered in 2004. We've been wondering if more mutations were going to show up. What
3: can you tell us about the EML4 ALK mutation that was recently discovered? So, here, two genes get to be in close contact with each other, and therefore, that close contact basically activates the oncogenic potential of one of the genes. You might be familiar with though, because that stands for Anaplastic Large Cell Lymphoma Kinase. Right. That's where it was first seen. That's where it was first seen. And so we're willing to bet that the drugs that work in lung cancer ought to work in those patients with Anaplastic Large Cell Kinase Lymphoma too, or with Anaplastic Large Cell Lymphoma. So there is a drug, still not FDA approved. It's still under investigation. It's called pf 1066 that just so happens to be an ALK inhibitor and can induce dramatic responses. So
0: these were the patients who had this, it's kind of like what you see with gefitinib and Erlotinib, Almost all the patients responded.
4: Absolutely. This story is really you know, getting told with BCR-ABLE in leukemia, EGFR mutations in lung cancer, this eml 4 alk in lung cancer, and BRAF mutations in melanoma. Every disease is going to have one of these. We just have to find it. We have to find the right drugs. Neil, one thing that's really astonishing to me is you mentioned the discovery of the eml 4 alk translocation. This whole thing was discovered. Nobody knew about the existence of EML4 ALP translocations in lung cancer until 2007. In 2010, we have a plenary session at ASCO in which patients who've been treated with these drugs have been shown to have a benefit. We have randomized phase three trials ongoing, and this drug will likely be FDA approved in a short time. You know, to go from a discovery of something in 2007 to treating patients and seeing significant results just three years later is truly amazing.
0: But maybe just to temper this with a little reality, Primo, I mean, I've heard people say, yeah, this is real exciting oncogene addiction, but maybe this is going to be 20% of cancers or even less, or do you well, think it's, that it's maybe way less. if we, I mean, you don't think if we keep looking, we'll find this on most people?
3: No, we won't find it in all people, and the current estimates are probably less than 5% of patients will have this translocation. It's turning out to be exclusive of EGFR mutations, so you won't find both mutations in the same patient. The field has moved, though, from just looking at adenocarcinoma as one disease, but rather adenocarcinoma as a gazillion different diseases. And what we're trying to do now is taking each slice of that pie and fashioning a treatment dependent on what is mutated in that patient's tumor.
0: All right, well, let's go through a few of the questions from the audience. One, I think it's kind of interesting. Again, Greg, what is Jefitnib? We haven't talked about Jefitnib in about five years, I think, because <laughs> it hasn't been used in the United States. What is Jafitinib, and what's the difference between Jafitinib and Erlotinib?
4: So Jafitinib and Erlotinib are really cousins. Jafitinib actually led the way in this area, and it was actually FDA approved in the United States in 2003. And then in 2004, after some early clinical trial results in a completely unselected patient population, showed no benefit in overall survival. The drug was limited in its scope of use, and so you essentially never see patients on it anymore. But they're very similar. The doses of Jafitnib and erlotinib lead to different levels of side effects, so Jafitnib has somewhat reduced risk of rash, but other than that, they're very similar drugs. And I so, think I mean, we,
0: we showed these data where Jafitnib, because it was a trial out of Asia, was actually used and yet we're using erlotinib, is there any reason to think there's a clinical difference in the two?
4: I don't think there's any negative to using erlotinib with the exception of somewhat greater toxicity and a toxicity which can be managed and dose reduced, but they really work in exactly the same way, and I think you can definitely think of them interchangeably.
0: We also got a bunch of questions going back to our Bev issue, and and one is, are there any comorbidities that increase the risk of pulmonary hemorrhage? Is there any way to select out patients and either in terms of coexisting diseases or tumor characteristics to say they're at high risk for hemorrhage from Bev.
1: Any history of hemoptysis, and again, assessment is key, asking that patient, did you ever cough up blood? You don't know, use the word hemoptysis, as we all know, but did you ever cough up blood is a key to perhaps rethinking the use of bevacizumab. And secondly, location of tumors still matters, so centrally located tumors really should be excluded from the use of bevacizumab in the event of risk of pulmonary hemorrhage.
4: And the other two things, that are squamous histology and tumor cavitation. That can also be a, a very concerning thing. Right. That's pretty uncommon, I guess. Or do you see cavitation very much? It's not common, but when it's there, you certainly want to pay attention to it.
0: So, Primo, we have somebody who's actually seeming to ask about a patient they saw who had a significant cardiac history, previous MI, hypertension on two antihypertensives, who has stage four non-small cell, and the doctor chose not
3: to use bevacizumab, do you think this is the correct decision the person wants to know? Remember, those patients were also excluded from the trial that got bevacizumab approved. So they didn't want patients who just had a recent MI. So that was the absolutely right decision. If I guess we need to follow our gut instincts sometimes when we're in clinic. You know that this patient is not a good candidate for a particular treatment. We need to follow that gut instinct.
4: And remind ourselves that this is palliative treatment. You know, we're not curing a patient. So the addition of a drug with potential fatal side effects has to be balanced with the idea that our goal is to improve overall survival and not really kill people.
3: And remember, the benefits for any of these agents are m- very modest in the Bevacizumab trial. It was, at the median, a two-month difference in overall survival. So, and the hazard reduction was only about 20%. So we're dealing with modest numbers here, so we need to take into account toxicity as well in our decision making.